Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. What a great and wonderful opportunity you give us to study the word of the Lord. We are such a blessed people. Forgive us, Lord, for not recognizing the blessing that you give to us through the written word of God. We realize, Lord, that as we open the word, we are able to understand you. And that's why we're here. We don't necessarily want to know about Job as much as we want to know about you. And what you did in the life of Job and how you worked through all the events surrounding this man's life. And so, Lord, our prayer tonight is that as we just take a a few moments to open the Word, to study, to listen, may we learn those things that will enable us to better glorify your name. We anticipate, Lord, the things you're going to teach us because we know that your Spirit works in and through the teaching and preaching of your Word And so we ask that, Lord, you'd open our eyes to be able to behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You got your Bible? Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. The Bible sets forth many men and many women who are examples. In fact, the Scriptures are filled with individuals who provide for us encouragement and hope because of the example that they set. In fact, the Bible says that we are to be imitators of Christ. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse number 6, he says, those in Thessalonica became imitators of me and of the Lord. So the Bible makes it very clear that we are to have these examples that we are to follow, that we are to look to. Hebrews 11. We've been studying Hebrews 11 for many, many weeks. All examples, all people who illustrate what it means to to walk by faith, to worship by faith, to witness by faith, to work by faith, to honor the Lord by faith. And so they become examples for us that we might learn to live a life of faith. Job, on the other hand, provides a different kind of example. The the kind of example that shows us how to live with adversity. How to live with pain and, and suffering. How to live with loss and rejection. Things that all of us face at different periods of our lives. So so Job sets a different kind of of example, the kind of example that we all need to have. Because I don't know what you know about people in our church or not, but, but there are many in our church who are going through very adverse circumstances, very trying circumstances. It might be a a physical ailment, it might be a a relational situation, it it might be uh, a variety of different things. But they feel the pressure that's coming down upon them, and they're having a hard time dealing with those things. So Job becomes the the quintessential example for every single one of us. It's not by accident that whatever it is you're going through at this time, we are now in the process of studying the life of Job. Because God wants to teach you so many different things concerning how it is this man lived a life that paved the way for you and me to understand what to do. He was a prime example. He was such a great example 
that Satan even heard about Job. Now listen, Satan is not omniscient. I know sometimes we think that Satan knows everything. He doesn't. He only knows what he can read and what he can see. He only knows what God tells him. But Job's example was so powerful that Satan even heard and knew about Job's example. Now listen, Satan, I'm sure, probably doesn't even care who you are. I'm sorry if that hurts you, but he probably doesn't. He doesn't even know your name. doesn't even know that you exist. He's got bigger battles to fight than just you and your family, right? Yeah, Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we'll talk about that more next week when we look at Satan's attack and abuse of, of Job. But Job's example was such a powerful example that even Job, uh, Satan knew about the life of Job. And so the Bible tells us in Job 1, verse number 1, there was a man. Now, if I had oodles of time, I would stop right there and just talk about there was a man. But I have a time constraint. I have 30 weeks in which I'm going to finish the life of Job. I'm not like John Calvin, who preached 159 sermons on the life of Job, or, or Spurgeon, who, who preached, uh, I think it was 88 or 89 sermons on Job. I have 30 that I'm going to preach on Job, okay? So I'm, I'm not going to stop where, with the first phrase, there was a man, although I'm very tempted to do that and talk to you about real true manhood and why Job is the epitome of, of biblical manhood, unlike any other individual in the Scriptures, But there was a man, and this man stands above other men. He stands apart from other men because he stands alone unlike most men. And he stands against everything that's evil. He is a unique man, a man of great courage, great confidence, great character. He is a unique man. And I told you last week, when we're all done, he's going to become your greatest hero in the Scriptures. Because when you see what happens to this man, and I know you've read about Job, James 5, verse 11, you've heard about Job. But do we really understand what happens in this man's life? And the Bible tells us that that the Word of God is inspired and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped, furnished unto all good works. In other words, whatever the Word of God teaches us, it's going to mend us together. It's going to tie all the loose ends together. Nothing can do that like God's Word can. Nothing. Only God's word is able to tie all the loose ends together and mend that which is fractured, put together that which is broken, so that the man of God will be equipped and furnished to do good work, the work that God has called him to do. So in our study of the book of Job, as we go through these 42 chapters, 
God's going to use the Word of God to mend your life together so that you as a man of God or a woman of God will be thoroughly equipped to accomplish all that God has for you. That's where we're going. That's what the Scriptures teach us. And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to go down, and we're going to begin to understand the land of Job. And then we're going to look at the leadership of Job. And then we're, we're going to look at, at the lifestyle of Job, the loyalty of Job. And then we're going to learn some lessons from Job. Five points tonight. That's it. Five points, five verses. Ha ha. Look at that. Five verses in one night. We're flying through the book of Job already. Job chapter one, verse number one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. There was a man. And he's from the land of Uz. This is the land of Job. Question is, where is Uz? In ancient times, they used to name land or civilizations after individuals. So because they did that, it kind of gives us some ideas as to the life and upbringing of Job. Now remember, there are so many unanswered questions about Job. Where exactly was he? Who were his contemporaries? What year was it actually on record that all this took place? Who is it that was influential in the life of Job? Questions that we don't have the answers to. And we'll never have them. And that's okay. Because those aren't nearly as important as to what God is doing in and through this man's life. But we can begin to piece some things together. And as we piece them together, we can begin to understand what it is Job knew, when he knew it, and how he knew it. For instance, the Bible tells us in Genesis 10, 23, that Amram was the grandson of Shem. He had a son named Uz. Very important. Many commentators would tell you that Job was a descendant of Shem. Remember, Shem is one of the sons of Noah, and his name means the name. He's the line of the name. Abraham is the descendant of Shem. He's the descendant from the line that means the line of the name. The name meaning what? Well, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And so through Abraham, the father of a great nation, we begin to understand the arrival of the Messiah. So there are some who believe that, that, that Job was a, a descendant of Shem, making him a contemporary of Abraham. Abraham, possibly Isaac, maybe even Jacob. We don't know that for certain, but what do we do know? We know there's no mention of Israel in the book of Job. No mention of the tabernacle in the book of Job. No mention of the law in the book of Job. No mention of the temple in the book of Job. So those things weren't around. And yet we know that he acted as a patriarch, a lot like Abraham did, for he was the patriarch. So he lived during the patriarchal times because he would offer up sacrifices for his children. 
if he lived during the priestly time, that would be wrong to do. But because he lived during the patriarchal time, it's a possibility that that's when he lived. That's why he could offer up sacrifices on behalf of his children. So there's a good understanding that this man, Job, who was from the land of Uz, which, by the way, is adjacent adjacent to Midian. And because it's adjacent to Midian, we know that Moses spent 40 years in Midian, right? And maybe Moses is the author of Job. Again, we have no idea who the author of Job is. Some would think it would be Moses because he would hear about Job while he was those 40 years in Midian. That's a possibility. But there's another possibility, and that is that Solomon wrote Job. Why is that? Because Solomon was the main contributor to the poetical books, and Job was one of the poetical books. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, poetical book. Wrote Proverbs, poetical book, right? Song of Solomon, poetical book. Maybe Solomon was the author of Job as well. Again, no one really knows for certain. We have all these speculations out there, all these ideas, but no one really knows for sure. But what do we know? We can only know what the Bible tells us, right? And there was a man who was from the land of us. And the Bible tells us that he was not an Israelite because he was the greatest man in the east. Well, east is east of the Jordan River. So Edom is east of the Jordan. And so Uz is in the land of Edom. And so that's where we know Job was from. And that's about all we know. But that's okay. We don't need to know any more than that. Because Job provides for us this great example. That's the land of Job. Let me tell you about the leadership of Job. Okay? Listen to what the Bible says. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Those four qualities made him the greatest man in the East. But the commentary that God makes on him is greater than that. Look what it says in verse number 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him, where? On the earth. Okay, so the Bible tells us he's the greatest man in the East. The Lord says there's nobody like him on the earth. So whoever's living at this time, there's no one like Job on the face of the earth. What a statement that God makes about this man. He makes an incredible statement. He says this, a blameless, upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Same statement. That's the leadership of Job. He was a blameless man. Now, the remarkable thing about this, as I, as I told you on Sunday, is that he learns about God. 
He knows God, but he doesn't have a Bible, right? Some, and some people have already asked me this question, do you believe that that God spoke to Job? The answer to that is, I don't believe so, until the book of Job, when he speaks to Job individually. Because I think if he had already spoken to Job, Job would have referenced his conversation with the Lord in his conversation with the men who came to somehow counsel him but didn't do a very good job. Didn't do that. So I don't believe that God specifically spoke to Job. Well, then how does Job know what to do? How does Job know about God? Job knew very little about God. But what he knew, he fully obeyed. Unlike you and me, we know a lot about God, but sometimes we don't fully obey. But Job was a man who knew the Lord and wanted to obey the Lord and follow the Lord. So the Bible tells us that Job was a blameless man. What does that mean? Maybe your Bible says a perfect man. Now, we know he's not perfect. We know he's not sinless because he confesses that he's a sinner. So we know he's not a perfect man. But the Bible does say he's a blameless man. What does it mean that he's a blameless man? It it speaks to his personal integrity. It speaks that whatever is within is without. In other words, what is ever on the inside is on the outside. That's the way Job was. Job was a blameless man. He was an upright man versus a crooked man. The wicked were crooked, but Job was upright. He was righteous. He was straight. He was God-fearing. He feared the Lord. Now, he doesn't know what you and I know about the Lord. He doesn't have all the information that you and I have. And yet he lived in fear. He lived in holy fear of the living God. So much so that he would offer sacrifices on behalf of his his children for fear of what might happen to their lives. But he lived in the fear of the Lord. Psalm would say in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, that the end of every man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Proverbs 23 and 24 says, chapter 23 says, we're to live in the fear of the Lord all day long. And chapter 24 says that we are to be blessed when we fear the Lord. Job was a blessed man, but he feared the Lord. That's how he lived his life. Trusting God, honoring God, knowing that his God was a consuming fire. But it also says that he was turning away from, from evil. He turned away from evil. Because he feared the Lord, he would turn away from that which is wrong. How do you know you fear the Lord? You turn away from evil. Those who don't fear the Lord run toward evil, right? They live in the realm of evil. But those who fear the Lord run away from evil. And that's the way Job lived his life. 
This was the leadership of the man's life. It was based on his character. It was benefited in the life of his children. But this is who he was. Now, what did he know about the Lord? As we go through the book, we're going to understand this. He knew about the sovereignty of God. Read about that last week. He knew about the justice of God. He knew about the power of God. He also knew about the redemption of God. Because he calls God his redeemer. Job 19. We also know he understands about the return of his redeemer. Because his plan was to stand upon the earth. He also knew about the resurrection of the believer because he believed his body would be resurrected. So there are things that he knew. The question is, how did he know them? Who told him? Well, the Bible doesn't give us that answer. If he's a descendant of Shem, then the lineage of truth would have been passed down from Noah to to Shem, to his sons, and to his sons' sons, until it came to Job. And that truth would be passed down from generation to generation. But we don't know that for certain. We know that he offered sacrifices. How do you know that? Well, Genesis 8, Noah offered burnt sacrifices. Genesis 22, Abraham offered burnt sacrifices. So if he's a descendant of Shem through Noah, he would know about burnt sacrifices. If he's a contemporary of Abraham, he would know about burnt sacrifices. But again, we don't know. And that's what makes the man so remarkable. is because he lives in an era where he doesn't have all the benefits that you and I have. Men's Bible studies, accountability groups, church, small groups, right? Retreats, conferences. You know what I mean? That stuff. And yet he was blameless. He was upright. He was God-fearing. He turned away from evil. Why is it we have all this information, all these resources, and yet we are weaker in manhood than at any other time in the history of the world? Think about that. That's just unbelievable to me. You know, we have coddled men for so long that they can't make it without somebody coddling them. But Job was never coddled. He was a blameless, upright, God-fearing man who knew I got to turn away from evil. Listen to what he says. I love this about Job. In Job chapter 28, verse number 28, he says this. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. In Job 31, verse number one, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I shall not gaze upon a virgin. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon 
another woman. What a, what a man of God that is. How did he know to do that? Because he feared the Lord. And because he feared the Lord, he wanted to turn away from everything that would dishonor the Lord. He wanted to make sure that his life would, would bring glory to the name of God. This is the leadership of Job. And that leadership then manifested itself in the lives of his children. The Bible tells us these words. <clears throat> he had seven sons and three daughters. Ten children. He loved his children. In the end, God gives Job twice as much as what he's ever had before. Except he only gives him ten children. He doesn't give him twenty. And the answer to that is very simple. Because he does have twenty. Because the other ten are in glory. They're still alive. Although he died in this life, they passed to the next life. So when the Lord gave him ten more, in reality, he has 20. So he did give him twice as much as what he had before. But he had, he had his children. And he loved these children. Which, which made me stop and think about this. If someone was to ask you what you do, what would you say? Who are you? What do you do? Well, I'm a plumber. I'm a coach. I'm a teacher, whatever the case may be, right? But what if you said, the next time someone asks you, what do you do? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. No, 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 what do you do? No, that's what I do. I am a husband and I'm a father. No, no, but how do you make your money? Oh, that's just an aside thing. I'm a pastor on the side. But in all reality, I am a husband and a father. See, that was Job. Job was a family man. Yeah, he worked. Yeah, he did all kinds of things. But Job was about being the man he needed to be for the glory and honor of God. And we have demeaned fatherhood and being a husband to a low level. But it should be at a high level. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And that's where I put my emphasis. That's my life. My life's not about the money I make. It just helps me get through life every single day. But it's really about being a husband and a father. And that was Job. And he understood, Proverbs 20, verse number 7, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. To lead your children demands a certain kind of character that Job exemplified. So you have the land of Job, you have the leadership of Job, you have the lifestyle of Job. The Bible tells us he possessed Possessions also were 7,000 sheep. Well, it would never be cold in the wintertime with all that wool, right? It says he had 3,000 camels. 3,000 camels. 
What do you do with 3,000 camels? Well, Job probably became the first Uber system or Lyft system. I'm sure he used his camels to transport people here and there. Or maybe he became the first U-Haul system. He helped people move because he had all these camels. I don't know. But 3,000 camels is a lot of camels. It says he had 500 yoke of oxen. In other words, he had 1,000 oxen. 500 female donkeys, right? For, For milk purposes. This was his lifestyle. This man was a wealthy man. He had very many servants. And he was the greatest man in the East. He was a legend. A legend. Popular. His reputation preceded him. A very unique man. And yet he had he had wealth in perspective. He wasn't trying to become wealthy. He just was. God blessed him. Abraham was a wealthy man, right? There's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money that's, that's wrong, right? But listen to what Job says in Job 31, verse number 24. If I had put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was, my wealth was great, And because my hand had secured so much, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. He wasn't a man that pursued wealth, although he was very wealthy. He had a good balance because he was a man of of integrity. He was a man of blamelessness. He feared the Lord. He was upright. In other words, he dealt with people in an upright fashion. He was a righteous man. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, the 14th chapter, that along with Noah and Daniel, Job was a righteous man. Wow, what company? Noah, Daniel, Job. How did they become a righteous man? Hebrews eleven seven tells us. Righteousness comes by faith. What is faith? You know. Believing in what God has already said. So Job believed what God said. Job understood what God was doing. And so therefore he believed in the resurrection of, of the Lord God of Israel. He believed in the return of the Lord God of Israel. He believed in the redemption of the Lord God of Israel. He believed in in what it meant to to honor the Lord. He lived in the fear of the Lord all day long. That was his man. But look, number four, with me at his loyalty. And I love this about Job. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. That would tell us that his three sisters probably were not married. But his sons would hold a feast on his day. 
So there's some discrepancy as to what it, what it means on his day. And the conclusion for some was that this was their particular day, maybe their, their birthday, the day in which there was a celebration. And therefore, they would gather together as, as brothers with their families and invite their sisters. And it says... They would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Notice, he gets up early. He rises early. He knows that on this particular day, he's going to offer burnt sacrifices. Sacrifices dealing with the dedication and consecration of his children to God. He knows that that as he offers these sacrifices, he does it during a time of celebration rather than any other time. Because he knows that during the time of celebration is a time you're least of all thinking about the things of the Lord. And so he wants to redirect their thinking toward the ways of God, toward the person of God, to help them to understand that what he's doing is for their sake and their sake alone. He did this for the fact that he wanted his children to know that burnt sacrifices dealt with the dedication of the whole person. And he wanted them to be like him. He wanted them to dedicate their lives to the Lord I like how one author said it. He said, later in history of Israel, a burnt offering would be the most expensive form of sacrifice in which the whole sacrificial animal is consumed. It pictures the hot anger of God burning up the animal in the place of the worshiper whose sins would have made them liable to be burned up in the presence of God. So we can imagine Job doing this for them one at a time. This one is for you. He lights the fire. And the animal's consumed. And the son or daughter watches the Holocaust and thinks, that is what would have happened to me if there had not been a sacrifice. And the next one, this one is for you. And so on until all the children were covered by the sacrifice. What was so serious that it necessitated such an expensive and urgent sacrifice? Why did Job insist on doing this party by party? Because he said to himself, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Although the children presumably showed outward piety, they did not curse God with their mouths. Their parties were not wild, drunken orgies or anything like that. Job was anxious lest in their hearts they did not honor God, lest deep inside lurked the godless wish that there were no God. Job has integrity. He is blameless. He is not so sure about his children. 
Job knows that what matters is not the appearance of godliness, but a godly heart. He knows that to curse God in the heart, to wish God dead, as it were, is a terribly serious offense. An offense that carries the eternal death penalty if it's not atoned for. But Job believes in the atoning power of sacrifice. So he offers burnt offerings. As Proverbs says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Proverbs 14, 26. And the narrative concludes that this Job did continually. Year after year after year, he would offer up sacrifices that would dedicate and consecrate his children to the things of God. This is Job. Why do we do this? Because you need to know the man before the tragedy strikes. The tragedy did not make Job. The adversity did not develop Job. You need to know the man before the tragedy strikes. Why? Because you need to be this kind of man. You need to be this kind of woman before the adversity comes. If you're going to handle adversity the way Job handled it, you have to follow his example. Not just when the adversity comes, but before it ever arrives. You see, Job had no idea it was coming. No idea. He's just doing what he always does. He's a God-fearing, blameless man, walking in an upright manner, turning away from evil, gathering together with his children on the day of celebration, and using that time and that time alone to offer those sacrifices up for his children, lest they sin in their hearts and they don't realize the necessity of a substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf. How did he know about substitutionary sacrifice? Genesis 22. Abraham. Genesis chapter 8. Noah. It was passed down. He learned well. He listened well because he feared God and wanted to honor him. So long before you, you hear the news that what you have is going to kill you, or before you hear the news that the car accident happened on this night and your child died, before you hear the news of whatever tragedy is going to come your way, you need to make sure you're this kind of man first. Because a tragedy is not going to make you this kind of man or this kind of woman. That's why Job is everyone's example. Because everyone goes through difficulties and hardship. But you need to be the kind of person God has called you to be. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, making him the greatest man in the East, and by God's assessment, the greatest man on the earth. What would God's assessment be of you? What would he say about you? What would he say about me? I would hope he'd say these things about me. Why? Because the lesson that we learn from this is very important. God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. The Bible says that the law of the Lord is 
blameless. Do you know that blamelessness is the position of every true child of God? Did you know that? That is our position in Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, these words. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Blamelessness is the position of every believer. This is who we are in Christ. We stand before him unflawed, although we're filled with flaws. We stand before him righteous because his son became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the position of every one of us who knows the Lord is that we are already blameless. And the promise of every one of us who knows the Lord is the promise of blamelessness. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Verse number 22 says this. And although, this is 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So not only is blamelessness your position, blamelessness is your promise. Holy and blameless before him without reproach. But it gets better than that. Because blamelessness is not just the position of the believer, not just the promise of the believer, but blamelessness is the prayer of every believer. Philippians 1, verse number 9, And I, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. <laughs> so not only are we positionally blameless, not only are we promised blamelessness, Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae is that they would be blameless people. What do you pray for for your children? We pray that they get married, that they have kids, they don't flunk out of college, they get a job. Maybe you should pray that they be blameless, that they would be people of integrity, people of trueness and pureness and holiness because that's what the prayer for the believer was. And Paul would make it very clear. So not only is blamelessness the position of the believer, the promise of the believer, the prayer of the believer. Listen, blamelessness is the practice of the believer. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 15. Or verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse 
generation. The practice of the believer is blamelessness. But when you grumble and you mumble and you complain and you bellyache, guess what? You cannot appear as messengers of light in a crooked and perverse generation because you're acting like the world acts. But the blameless person is not a grumbler. He's not a complainer. He's not, he's not griping about what's going on in his life. No. He's a blameless person. Because positionally he's blameless. Prayerfully he's blameless. He's promised blamelessness. So he wants to practice blamelessness. And that's what Job did. But blamelessness is also the pursuit of the believer. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Blamelessness is the pursuit of the believer. It's a passionate pursuit. It's a zealous pursuit. It's an eager pursuit. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, what things? The return of Christ. The new heaven and the new earth. Because you're already looking for those things. You need to be found diligent, pursuing spotlessness and blamelessness. If you're not pursuing blamelessness, it's because you don't look for the things that are coming, that is, the return of the Messiah. Because when you do, you are consumed with being like him. And lastly, the Bible tells us that blamelessness is the pleasure of the believer. Psalm 119 says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless. The blessed man is the blameless man. Job was a blessed man because he was a blameless man. Now, that didn't mean that he would be protected from all kinds of adversity. No, not at all. On the contrary, right? But the way Job was in terms of his leadership, in terms of his character, prepared him to handle all the adversity that came his way, all the loss that he suffered. He was so committed to turning away from evil that when the individual closest to him, his wife, encouraged him to do evil, he still wouldn't. Think about that. He was so committed to a pure and holy life that when his wife encouraged him, curse God and die, be done with it. Can we accept good from God and not adversity? Oh, no. Not Job. He was so committed to turning away from sin when his beloved wife encouraged him to sin, he still wouldn't even though 
he could bypass all the pain. What a man. What an incredible man. He becomes the example for everybody in the room. He's the quintessential example of manhood, of biblical manhood. What it means to follow the Lord and love the Lord and honor the Lord. Because next week, you're going to see an attack and an abuse upon this man's life that for all practical purposes, he did not deserve at all. But it came, and he never knew the reason why. He just needed to trust the true and living God for all that he would do. And he did. But he had to be the man that he was in order to handle those things. Same is true for you and me. We need to be the kind of man that Job was. Blameless, God-fearing, upright, turning away from evil. So when the difficulties come, and they do, because Job tells us man is born into trouble lest sparks fly upwards. We're able to handle those things because we're already walking with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word. We are a blessed people. Pray, Lord, that the things that we learn would stick with us. Lord, help us to be men and women of character. Character's king. Character's all that counts. And pray that we be that kind of person. Lord, we love you. That's why we're here. That's why we want to learn. We want to know what Job knew. We want to be like Job was. Because, Father, he handled things a lot differently than than we handled them. So, Lord, teach us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.